Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey everyone, today I'm joined by Yassine, Arc's in-house crypto and Bitcoin analyst, and he's been doing some research on the centralization or decentralization nature of Bitcoin and how it's evolved over time. And he has some very strong opinions, and I'm going to try to pry it out of him. So, Yassine, there is this narrative going on that Bitcoin is becoming increasingly centralized, and this has generated, of course, a bunch of interest in other forms of currency using different kinds of consensus protocols, such as for Ethereum or for Decred. Your position is you've looked at this, the the history of Bitcoin and its centralization. And is this a problem in what you found? Sure. So one, it's a pretty broad question to ask, is Bitcoin centralized, right? The idea that, of course, increasingly we see that the legitimacy of Bitcoin's quote unquote consensus mechanism has come under scrutiny around its stability Maybe we just like maybe as a first order, why does it matter if Bitcoin is becoming more centralized or not? I guess that's a first the starting point. Sure. So I mean, I, I would say at the highest level, so the Bitcoin is able to reach consensus without a centralized enforcer, right? The idea that you have something that is organizationally decentralized and logically centralized is part of Bitcoin's foundational innovation that you can agree on this single source of truth without anyone really owning that single source of truth, it comes down to to Bitcoin's underlying foundation. And so participants are able to voluntarily contribute to securing the network by what we know as mining, right? Where it's basically just a process in which blocks of transactions are verified and appended on Bitcoin's ledger. And then you have these miners who find these blocks by expending electricity and operate, you know, what are known as ASICs or these exclusive hardware that's devoted to securing the Bitcoin network. And then in return, they're rewarded with, with Bitcoin. And so I guess the, that's the, that's what makes Bitcoin different from Visa. It does not require a central actor. So for it to work well, it has to be de- decentralized. If it became centralized, it would be no better than a Visa. Exactly. So if hash power is concentrated amongst a single or a small group of miners, these miners can conduct what's commonly referred to as a 51% attack and use this collective computing power to basically just double spend funds. And of course, that eliminates or, or violates Bitcoin's main value proposition of leaving these, not allowing for a single entity to have control over the history of transactions. Could you give our listeners just a quick primer over what is mining, what is hashing power, what is a 51% attack? All the, I guess, concerns you're alluding to. Yes. Yeah, so the function of mining is to add transactions to a universal shared transaction history, right? And that's what the blockchain is. So every time I send, Alice or Bob sends money to each other, that is a mining operator's 
confirming that transaction. Exactly. So that's right. So this is done by producing blocks. The way that the Bitcoin network work is that is that roughly probabilistically every 10 minutes, a block is produced. And so what these blocks are, they're just bundles of transactions, right? And so defining the canonical history of these transactions is defined by quote unquote, what the most cumulative proof of work is, or more simply what the longest chain is, right? So the longest chain or the most cumulative proof of work is the one that miners expend electricity to secure the network. And so if a single miner has more resources than the entirety of the rest of the network, i.e. has 51% of hash power, then that miner can pick an arbitrary previous block from which to extend an alternative block history, right? And so what that eventually does is that outpaces the canonical block history. And so now you've basically redefined that history. So if I were to put in, if my understanding of, based on what you're telling me is the compute infrastructure of Bitcoin is distributed among just ordinary civilians or maybe professional operators, unlike a single company such as Visa putting all the database in their building. The way that you know what is true is by agreeance between these workers in the wild on the internet, basically. And if a single entity manages to get to 51% of the number of, of the total compute power of that network, that person basically gets to write who has what and, and change history and alter it in their favor. That's the concern of exactly. the 51% it, attack. Exactly. So in addition to proof of work, which is a, a civil control mechanism, which basically is a mechanism to avoid spam, you have Nakamoto consensus, which is a distributed way for these miners to, or these nodes to reach consensus. And so that's exactly to your point. And so if you are able to rewrite this history, you undergo what's called a chain reorganization or a chain reorg. And so if you do that, then you go into the whole discussion of a double spend problem, right? Where it's like, you have currently are working on one chain, you've spent a transaction on that chain, but little do, does anyone else know, you're actually working on creating a completely new parallel chain. And so you're able to propagate that new parallel chain while already having spent on the original canonical chain. Is the concern that over time, due to the efficiencies of, it used to be in the beginning of Bitcoin, you know, people had Bitcoin mining machines in their basement and it was kind of quite distributed. Is the concern that over time, as these operations become professional, as they become essentially AWS-like data centers, that someone will eventually accumulate due to efficiencies of operation 51% of the hash power? That's exactly right. So it's this idea that, you know, Bitcoin's proof of work is inherently converging towards centralization. And what that means at the highest level is that you basically just have a handful of large vertically integrated companies who will not only end up dominating con the consensus process, but will also have exposure to every layer of the stack. So you can think of like Bitmain as the primary example of that. Who's Bitmain? So Bitmain is one of the largest minor manufacturer companies. They recently filed for an IPO that you know has yet to be approved, but they've basically been able to, for the last you know three or four years, have exposure to every layer of the mining stack, you know, from the actual ASIC and the mining equipment, all the way to in-house mining, to, you know, mining pool operators and actually operating these mining pools. And so the reason why I actually take issue with your question of is proof of work or is mining centralized is that there are actually several layers and several stages from, again, talking about even ASIC designers 
sourcing, you know, semiconductors, right? That makes it such that to look at just mining pool centralization or to just look at the share of hash power in a mining pool kind of undermines everything else that goes before that. And so traditionally or historically, Bitmain has been able to have such dominance in the space, not because they own a majority of hash power because they don't, but because they have been able to get exposure to previous stages of the pipeline, including, and their largest is actual mining equipment. So 51% is the magic number. We don't want to get to that because it would compromise the security of the network for Bitcoin. How close are we? And is, is this concentration getting stronger or weaker over time? Sure. So I think it might help to perhaps preface this whole discussion by giving some sort of historical background on the evolution of Bitcoin mining, right? Where we went from really a hobbyist activity back in 2011 to now a fully fledged professional industry, right? So for those who don't know, in 2009, Bitcoin mining really began as a hobbyist activity where you really had just Satoshi Nakamoto and Hal Finney who were mining Bitcoin. And so arguably they could have 51% attacked and like long live Bitcoin or not, right? The first mining was actually performed just with standard CPUs that were drawn from desktops. And then we shifted to GPUs, which were more specialized. And that was around 2010. And then the most important point is that given the increased difficulty to mine, what happened is we started to actually pool the mining where, you know, the idea of mining pools were introduced that allowed entities to collectively mine and then basically share their efforts pro rata. And then in 2011, from GPUs, we switched to FPGAs. And then finally in 2013, and that's where we are right now, we have the latest Bitcoin hardware, which runs on ASICs or application-specific integrated circuits that really have the sole and exclusive purpose of mining Bitcoin. And so again, with the rise of these ASICs, we've kind of, again, seen this professional industry evolve with the bitmains of the world at the forefront of that. And so what that has caused is this idea of, of mining pools. So when assessing the threat of mining pool centralization, first off, I think it's important to not conflate entities who are actually running mining pools, like you see with a bitmain, and entities who actually mine themselves or self-mine, right? And so, for instance, Bitmain, they own and operate two mining pools, and then they have a stake in a third mining pool. So does that mean that Bitmain owns 51% of or the cumulative sum of the mining pools that they operate? Not really, right? Because at any point, a miner who participates in the pool may decide to leave without any obligation to these operating managers, right? Mining pools are just front ends that service demand. They're not underlying control of hardware. Exactly, exactly. So what they do is they control what, what are called block templates. So there is a risk in that where it's like, if you control block templates, then you're able to censor transactions. But at any point, if participating miners see a potential threat of miner centralization, they may decide to switch to a different pool. And we actually saw that in 2014 with Ghash as, as the largest example. Of so that. what happened there? So what happened there was that there, there were two mining pools, I believe Ghash and BTC Guild, where they were slowly uh, creeping towards the 51% number. 
And then as soon as people who participated, who were participating in that pool realized that, they immediately left for another pool so as to redistribute the concentration. What do you think is their motivation for leaving? Well, I mean, at the highest level, if you're a miner and you are devoting exclusive equipment and paying hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of not only CapEx, but you know, maintaining and running these farms, then it is not in your best interest to have a perception that Bitcoin mining is centralized. So it's funny, from an outsider's perspective, there is a meter there's market share they can look at. As this meter climbs toward 50-50%, the perceived security and integrity of Bitcoin and the value of Bitcoin in a way decays. So participants into this kind of game system will want to basically keep it below 51%. Exactly. If we assume that they are honest miners, in no way is there an incentive for these miners to show that they have more control than they should have. And of course, you can counter that with saying, okay, but what if, so what if you are a malicious miner, right? And the argument there is that it's actually, while theoretically possible, not as feasible as one might expect. The simplest example is, okay, why don't, why doesn't someone just, you know, a state go and buy up all the ASICs and do a 51% attack and then that destroys Bitcoin? Or why doesn't a miner, you know, if there's enough of liquidity in a shorting market, you know, it's 51% attack and then short the market, perhaps they might be more profitable in that regard. So why don't they? So for one, even if it is possible from like a financial capital perspective, it's not possible from like a liquidity perspective, right? Where it's like, let's say that to acquire more than half of the ASICs, it, it costs around $2 billion. That assumes that there is a willing seller that owns half of the ASICs, Right. Because you can't go to a Bitmain or a TSM directly and, and, and produce 51% worth of equipment to undergo an attack because simply there's just a, a constraint on supply. And then at the same time, it's like even if you were go to go to the secondary markets, there's just the lack of liquidity. And so while this idea of shorting the markets is theoretically possible, there is a question of whether or not it's feasible. The way I visualize it is when you buy hardware, you're typically buying new hardware and the hash power of Bitcoin is a function of the installed base, whereas the monthly production out of TSMC is a production rate. So that's production rate is always going to be a tiny fraction of installed base. So you just can't, you can't just buy and accumulate enough to get to 51% of actual installed base. That's exactly right. I remember when doing a little bit of research around the foundry dynamics with these mining equipment manufacturers, we think that the bitmains of the world have so much control, but in fact, they're, you know, small, like petty players in the TSMs. So they're the TSMC's least favorite customer. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, especially with the, there was a funny, I remember you, I mean, this has to do with GPUs and NVIDIA, but Jensen Wong, I remember was like, just buy Bitcoin, don't buy Ethereum. We don't want to have anything to do with the mining. Exactly. So yeah, so they're last in the pecking order. You have the Apples, the Broadcoms, the Qualcomms of the world who are way ahead of Bitmain. And even if they were first in the pecking order, there wouldn't be enough wafers to supply to begin with. So you've looked at some stats Share some of those stats with us that kind of demonstrate how concentration has changed over time for the Bitcoin blockchain. Yes. So currently, hash rates show some concentration amongst mining pools, but otherwise, they're fairly well distributed and they've become more distributed over time. So to give a sense, the top four mining pools do capture more than 51% of the network's hash power. And then, of course, as we discussed, Bitmain 
runs antpool in btc.com and also owns a stake in via BTC. But if we, we can assess this, its centralization over time, there's a common heuristic used called the Herfindahl-Hirschman index. And it's basically a metric that determines market concentration. It's at the highest level, just the sum of the squares of market share. This is a number that is used by government regulators to figure out if a particular industry is in a state of monopoly. Correct. The US DOJ considers this as a, a mechanism to determine that. Roughly anything less than 1500 on the HHI is considered to be a competitive marketplace. Anything between 1500 and 2500 is a moderately concentrated marketplace. And then anything greater than 2500 is considered to be highly concentrated. And where and does so, Bitcoin stand right now? So there are three variations that we can provide given our understanding of Bitmain's control of mining pools. That combined, of course, with the fact that mining pools also have an unknown entity, right? And so that unknown entity, we can either assume that it consists of several entities or a single entity. So if we conservatively assume that it is a single entity, then HHI has been around under 1500. And the last time I calculated it, it was around 1300. So that is considered to be a competitive marketplace. If we were to calculate HHI, where unknown comprises of several mining pools, where like, let's say, okay, unknown consists of 15 evenly distributed mining pools, then that again is even is even lower. And so since 2013, the HHI index has actually hovered between 700 and 1700 and stands at around 1200. And then finally, if we assume extremely conservatively, right? Like this is the strongest assumption where it's like, okay, let's say that btc.com, F2 pool, and 50% of via BTC is a single entity, right? Under that assumption, HHI had a peak of 2050, so 2050, which is again, considered to be moderately concentrated. And the last time I checked was actually declining and is now considered to be roughly competitive. So by these you know, fairly well-known metrics, it looks like Bitcoin as it stands today, the mining pools, is not super concentrated. It's not super concentrated. And this metric also assumes that the players remain the same, right? There's also a very interesting insight that HHI doesn't address, where if you look at mining pool turnover and the average lifetime, that is also an indication that not only is it becoming more competitive, but it has been extremely competitive over the last five years. So in HHI, the only way that the, the way that, it is, that it's calculated is that it actually accounts for the current state of the mining pool ecosystem, right? At each time frame. So it doesn't account for if, you know, at time frame at T equals two, it was the same players as T equals one, right? And so my assumption, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my intuition is like in industries that are centralized, right? It would seem to be that turnover would need to be low, right? You need to have low turnover if you think that an industry is converging towards some sort of centralization or some sort of monopoly. It doesn't make sense that you have like a monopolistic industry with five different players who have all had a monopoly on that industry. Or the monopoly changes every year. Or the monopoly changes every year. Whereas a competitive industry would suggest that like really just no single player can remain dominant. And is that what you're finding? And that's what I'm finding. So it's really, really interesting where in the last five years, the average mining pool lifetime has been two and a half years. Now, 
of the 26 mining pools that have existed, 16 are no longer running. So most mining pools in the last five years that have been operating are actually no longer operating. And not only that, but the longest operating mining pools. So for instance, Slush Pool has been one of the longest operating mining pools, has only controlled approximately 6% of hash power. So this seems to suggest that there's no indication of the dominant mining pool being more likely to last longer. Why do you think it is that for something that's basically focused on operational excellence, you know, how many computers I buy, how well efficiently I can operate that, it seems like whoever is best at that should basically get better and and those with less fewer good practices will kind of drop by the wayside. Intuitively, it seems like it would would concentrate as the inferior operators of mining data centers go out of business, but that's not the case. Why do you think that that's that's happening? Well, I, I, I think it's it's happening because the mining pool operators actually only have so much control, right? Where it's like, you know, they have specific fee structures, specific payout structures. And then as a solo miner, or as someone who wants to partake, I then go choose what mining pool I, I would like to participate in. And so that in combination with mining in general, just being much less profitable than it was previously, it just makes sense that you have this highly competitive, almost ruthless environment where there is no single one winner because there is no one competitive advantage or, or strong moat that a mining pool operator might have. It's it's really like almost a free market of where they're 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 competing on very, very little moat. Have you found that the mining pool concentration has gotten better or worse over time? So it it has gotten better and I think it will continue to get better. Better meaning more fragmented. Better being meaning more fragmented. So CoinMetrics recently came out with an amazing granular mining pool mapping where they actually look at every one of Bitcoin's Coinbase outputs and kind of maps it out. And so I, I remember having done that a little bit, but they expanded on it and they were able to show using kind of like a stacked area chart, how one, this mining pool turnover is a real thing. And that we're continuing to kind of see that the players today were not the players they were two years ago hmm. or three years ago. And then we're seeing this even as of late, and and we saw this in these last couple of months, the Dominant mining pools in 2018 are also losing share. So Bitmain's mining pool dominance, there was an article that came out, is down 28% in the last half of 2018. And so that's... The switching costs are basically negligible. The switching costs are negligible. And Bitmain's business model behind producing these this equipment that you know kills everyone else is also not what it once them. was, mm-hmm. right? And so we were discussing this before, but it's this idea of in 2016, you had Bitmain as a minor equipment manufacturer who by far provided the most competitive equipment. And that was for several reasons. The, the ASIC design was better. They had a stronger team and they had a crypto first mindset. You fast forward to 2018 and now you have five or six competitors each completely indistinguishable from the rest. And this idea of ASIC commoditization, where there is no real difference between me going with Bitmain or me going with eBay or what's minor, further disintermediates the power. And so why is this relevant to mining is because now 
Bitmain's cash flows and the insane margins and the very low replacement cycles that they were able to generate by having that equipment moat is dead. And so their ability to mine in-house, their ability to operate their own mining pools also dies with it. So you see, what is your biggest takeaway having looked at this data and I guess having seen that the Bitcoin mining pools are, are losing concentration? What do you think is the most interesting conclusion from this? So I think that in general, we were at like a very interesting inflection point in kind of Bitcoin's state, right? The end of 2017 saw Bitcoin's price skyrocket to all-time highs and then experienced all of the 2018, a complete sell-off. During the same period, you had the mining industry that rapidly matured and underwent significant change. You had you know new entrants who were able to successfully emerge and, and rival the Bitmains of the world. I actually remain very optimistic about the ecosystem and proof of work and Bitcoin mining specifically because of, again, this idea of ASIC commoditization, but also this idea of mining pool or mining, the costs of mining are now much more heavily focused on CapEx more than on like OpEx, right? Where it's like previously we would have miners who would be paying, you know, 10 cents a kilowatt hour. You'd have the Bitmains of the world or these larger mining farms who are paying one to three cents per kilowatt hour. And so their moat was, was a lot stronger because of this low electricity cost. Now we're kind of seeing a convergence towards zero electricity cost or even negative rates of electricity cost by unlocking, you know, these stranded energy assets. What is that about? So th that's about like, so there's this idea that there are a lot of stranded energy assets in renewables specifically. So like hydroelectric, where it's, it's difficult to transport. Solar is not as efficient as it could be. And so people are actually offloading the costs or paying people to realize, to, to capture that, the, that stranded energy asset instead of just dumping it. And so there is a use case for Bitcoin or for mining to accommodate for that stranded energy asset. Why don't they use energy for something else, for just regular electricity usage? It goes to waste. It's, it's like overproduction. It's it's oh, overproduced. I see. Okay, exactly. so they over overproduced on maybe wind or or exactly. tie. Exactly. Exactly. So instead of just not using the, the equipment, you can tie some mining equipment to it. Exactly. I see. Exactly. I see. Exactly. So I mean, that's a whole another discussion about whether or not Bitcoin mining is clean or whether it's wasteful. But I think what you're really yeah. trying to get at is the huge amount of proposals that's come after Bitcoin. A huge amount of the altcoins, the other kinds of coins that try to be financial instruments using different kinds of algorithms, whether it's proof of stake or some hybrid mechanism, all those are in some way trying to address this problem or perceived problem of Bitcoin, which is it's going to get more concentrated over time. And that fundamental premise of distributed computing is going to break. And hence, we have these new fancier solutions. You're saying you don't need the new fancier solutions because it is not a problem and it's actually getting to be even less of a problem. That's correct. I'm saying that if you're looking at proof one, if you're looking at proof of work as purely like a Sybil control mechanism where that basically deters spam, then yes, a proof of stake or you have these alternative consensus mechanisms that are going and saying proof of work is so wasteful. There are other ways that we can control Sybil attacks. If you're looking at this as, you know, a mechanism by which you are trading off computational inefficiency for social scalability, then not only is there nothing more effective than proof of work, but the fear that it is centralized is definitely overblown. 
I'm not saying that other consensus algorithms or civil control mechanisms won't work. I just think that the the costs are distributed elsewhere and that you can think of a lot of these as just obfuscated ways of expressing proof of work, right? So it's like Paul Stork has a, a very interesting article around, you know, proof of stake just being obfuscated proof of work. I think that we are going to very likely converge on like a single proof of work chain because again, energy is is zero sum. Mm. So it doesn't make sense to have, you know, multiple proof of work chains. I think that, you know, Bitcoin specifically will likely be just a black hole Mm. for proof of work chains, which may perhaps leave room for other consensus algorithms to accommodate for less secure networks. So Larry Suckernick has an interesting delineation between, you know, platform grade censorship resistant and sovereign grade censorship resistant. So if you want the really robust, tough, physical, explicit costs, then something like proof of work for a hard money makes the most sense. So if you're not trying to be hard money and you're not trying to have that sovereign grade censorship resistance, then perhaps a proof of stake makes sense. If you're trying to be, you know, a distributed compute platform or a distributed storage platform, then, you know, having a proof of work chain may not be efficient for, again, but for proof of work and for hard money and for Bitcoin specifically, the inefficiency is a key feature and an intended trade-off. And that's, I think, a common misconception. Okay, Yassine, it was nice talking to you. Where can people find more of your work? You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow ARK at ARK Invest on Twitter. And just stay tuned, subscribe to our ARK newsletter and podcast. Yes, please give us a rating on the podcast store of your choice if you enjoy this podcast. Thank you. Thanks. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.